This is episode 24 of the CB Northwest and Camp Tadmore Events Podcast. We're finishing up Men's Roundup 2006, Choose This Day, Who Will You Serve? This is session four with Dr. Charles Cooper. Thank you all for the wonder of this weekend as I've uh, had the opportunity to talk with many of you about situations and circumstances. We are greatly encouraged as I've talked to your, your team leaders who really have a burden for you and for your churches and for your family. They want desperately to see you achieve God's best. I've been at the preaching, teaching ministry for just 32 years. Started preaching, I was 15 years old. And for many years, I thought the best thing that I could do for people would be to expose them to the truth of God's Word. Went to school and learned how to preach and study God's Word so that I could teach it the very best I could in hope that people would be impressed by knowledge and that knowledge would transform. But in my last years, I've come to believe, gentlemen, that the most important thing that I ever do for people is to pray for them. For the last four weeks, I have prayed for you, I have fasted for you, I have begged God for you. Because what really needs to happen is for God to supernaturally come into your life in a way that he has never done before and to alter your perception of yourself and him. If you become convinced of the power and the might and the majesty of God, the rest will take care of itself. I appreciate you inviting me to come, but you could have simply paid me to pray for you, to fast for you, to lay in before God, to accomplish for you what is ultimately necessary. I'm a much more convinced celebrity of prayer than I am of anything. We grow weary, we get tired, we lose the energy, we just don't have the excitement. And it's because we do not have an adequate picture of God and conviction of just exactly who he is. And we are ignorant of how he might want to work in this day. I want to tell you, God wants to work in your life in the ways that he has always worked. God is who he is. He has never changed. He wants to be for you everything you need. He wants you to be so dependent on him that you are weak without him. 
When you recognize that, know that, and live in light of that, you'll begin to experience God in an intimate, personal way that will not leave your days regular. This morning I want to finish uh, my series here on the kind of educators your sons and daughters need of you as father. This morning I want to talk about spirit-directed educators, not the unconscious passive educator, nor the conscious active educator, though that is most necessary. But this morning I want to talk about being a spirit-directed educator in the role of father to your sons or your daughters. Until just over five years ago, the most well-known name in golf was a man by the name of Jack Nicholas. Nicholas, to date, has won 73 major PGA events, more than anybody else. He has won 18 professional majors. He has 19 second place finishes in majors. He has built 300 celebrated golf courses, of which 77 of them have been used for more than three hundred professional tournaments of one kind or another. He has four sons. Does anyone know their names? One or two. Jack second Steve, Gary, and Michael. None of them are famous as golfers, though two of them play on the professional tour. If they have notoriety, it's because of their golf course design business. They design golf courses. And they do very well at it. But as a professional golfer, they leave much to be desired. And came a fellow by the name of Earl Woods. Earl Woods played golf, but nothing of any repute. In fact, growing up as a kid, there was only one golf course in his hometown of Manhattan, Kansas, and it didn't allow him to play. He would have gone to college either, but for his brilliance as a basketball player, which won him a scholarship to Kansas State University where he would subsequently graduate with a degree in education and would eventually 
go on to graduate school and to get a degree in sociology. Because of limited prospects, he ultimately went into the military, where he basically made his life. It was in Vietnam where Earl Woods did two tours with the Green Berets, decorated for bravery. It was there in Thailand that he met Taida, the mother of Tiger. In an interview that he gave not long before his death, he said, the idea of me as a controlling father is 180 degrees from the truth. It was never a question of me forcing Tiger to play golf. Everything came from him. He was the one who was interested in golf. In fact, I tried to interest him in other sports. I introduced him to baseball. He was a natural switch hitter. But he said, no thanks, it interferes with my golf swing. <laughs> Earl Woods goes on to say, then I tried to get him interested in football. And when he went to high school, I convinced him to try out for cost, the cost cross-country team. Within two weeks, he was the number two man on the team. He quit after a year because it interfered with his golf. Everything I did was negated, Earl Wood said. He chose golf on his own. I never pushed him. Now, how is it that a man who never pushed his son to play golf produce the greatest golf player this world perhaps will ever see or certainly will see to this point? And a man who was the greatest golfer of this age, Jack Nicholas, four sons, didn't produce one. Doesn't that seem to be off kelter? Certainly not what you would have expected. The story of Tiger Woods is still being written. Wonder what would do, wonder what would happen to him if he met Jesus. I pray for him that Jesus will reach him one day. Not because he's a great golfer, because he's a sinner and he's lost. Pray for him the same way I do for everyone else who doesn't know Christ, that they may come to have the abiding pleasure of being saved eternally in the presence of Almighty God. My point this morning, however, is this. Men, you never know who that boy is God gave you. You never know. You do not know what potentiality lies in that boy you birth into this world. And it's only by paying attention that you will begin to see 
evolving in him his capabilities that may need to be shaped and molded and defined that he might one day stand on the pinnacle of all that the world holds dear with the opportunity to give honor and praise to Jesus Christ. It is an interesting concept to me that the Bible is interested in how you raise your children. In Ephesians, if you will, chapter 6, you're going to be a spirit-directed educator. The Word of God gives you not advice about how to educate, but advice about how to ensure that you don't stunt his growth. Ephesians chapter 6, well-known text. Children, the Bible says, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise so that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. What a promise. Now, dads, if there, if there are certainly lots of passages you ought to teach your children, but in my humble opinion, I think the first passage you should cause your children to memorize is this one. but not for the reason you think. <laughs> it certainly is wonderful to have obedient children. Nothing could be better than to have wonderful, obedient, godly, loving children. But to me, far greater good are the promises that are tucked in back of this obedience. It says, young men, listen, God promises you that if you will honor and obey your parents, he'll do two things for you. He'll give you a wonderful life and a long one. What, what more can you want? I had a friend of mine who recently died. 87 years old. Now, my point is not to be vulgar. I don't need to be vulgar, but most of you are old enough to, you, you know the facts of life. You know what boys do. Boys marry women, make children, and die. You want to nutshell it, boys, that's it. <laughs> you pray for your hope for just a little fun along the way, but that's about it. <laughs> and it's a very interesting real road you, you go. You start off real young, and when you're young, you think you got all the power and strength in the world. But the older you get, the weaker you get. 
until ultimately you get so weak you can't hardly get up out of the chair. You'll eventually get so weak you won't even want to get up. You just sit there all day, hopefully not drooling. Now, if you want to see what your prospects are, young men, you need to go down to a local nursing home, what they call Home for the Caring Aged. Recently in there, walked down the hall, there was an old man tied in a bed because he kept getting up, walking off, wandering off, and so they just tied him in his bed. Another guy sitting in a wheelchair just mumbling, not talking to anybody, just mumbling. Another old fella um, looking for his teeth, couldn't find his teeth. An old lady in there, she was just kind of sitting around moaning and bowing and kind of in a jumbly head shake type thing. And I thought, boy, that's it. <laughs> Look where I'm going. <laughs> but it doesn't have to be that way. The Bible says if you honor your parents, the Lord will give you health. In other words, he says, listen, I will cause it to be well with you. You well. And I'll give you long days. I had a friend of mine, as I told you, 87 years old, and just died. Died in his sleep. Not long ago, he and I were... Um, messing around, he had a wonderful sense of humor, and, and you just have to know him to really appreciate him. Um, he was a very godly man, and um, he was telling me, about, about, two year, about two years ago, he was telling me, he's, he's, he was 85 then, but he, he was 79, he was telling me how, how great his sex life was at 85. Now, you, you think I'm serious, but you think I'm kidding. He was serious. And his wife, who was about 79, I think she was 79, uh, she could attest that he still had... Um, uh, he still had steel, um, if you understand what I mean. I know. I'm not trying to be, I'm just trying to tell you that, listen, it is a fact that if you live your life a certain way, that even at 85, hey, you can still cause a ruckus down at the old folks' home down there. If you want. <laughs> now, some of you fellows that haven't, you're still virgins keeping yourself pure which I hope you are you're gonna get married and and you're gonna find out what this thing is all about and then you're gonna suddenly wake up one day and you're gonna want to do this all of your life <laughs> but if you live your life a certain way you're gonna hit about 45 and you're gonna need Viagra <laughs> then you're gonna hit about 55 and Viagra won't help no more. 
Then they're going to be giving you all kinds of gadgets and they're trying to give you implants and they're trying to give you air balloons. And hey, it's over, boys. You're sitting there mumbling about what was and what used to be. But some of those old men are still causing trouble down at the old home. You need to understand that promise has profound implications. God says, hey, listen, it will go well with you. You will be healthy. And he said, I'll give you long, good, strong, energetic days of steel. Now, daddies, if you are if you're a man and you care anything about being a man, you ought to teach your son that. You ought to have pity on that boy and <laughs> help a fella out, will you? <laughs> now, I want you to notice what the converse of that is. God, so I said, now listen, honor your father and mother. Your days will be long. I'll make you well. And I'll make you long days. He says, now, but now in converse, notice in chapter 6, verse 4, Father, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. I find it fascinating that the Bible would, in the context of promising you long life and health, life would be well with you, that things would go well, the very next verse said, now, daddy, don't make your kids mad. If you look at the companion to this, it's, it says, do not exasperate your children. This word for anger here is used interestingly. In one place in the Bible, in Romans chapter 10, verse 9, it says that God made Israel angry because he was being nice to Gentiles, you. Same word. The noun form of this word is used in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26, when it says, anger can get you in trouble. Therefore, don't let anger cause you to be destroyed. It's a very powerful emotion, and it says, daddies, be intent upon making sure that you don't cause your boys and your girls to be angry. Now, Dad, you need to listen. It's your responsibility to ensure that you do not provoke anger in your children. Anger that arises or anger that is avoided by attitudes and words and actions which would drive a child to angry exasperation or resentment and thus rules out all kinds of excessive and severe discipline, unreasonably harsh demands, abuse of authority, arbitrariness, unfairness, constant nagging, condemnation, subjecting a child to humiliation, and all forms of gross insensitivity to a child's needs and sensibilities. These are the things you must do, Dad, if you're not going to produce angry children. Now, I know what most of you fathers are saying. What? 
I get up every day and go to work, and I pay light bill, gas bill, and water bill. I buy groceries. I buy, I buy the underwear that boy wears. You want me to be worried about his feelings? Yeah. Yeah, I do. Because an angry child will reduce his longevity. Did you know that anger and all that comes with that is number one reducer of longevity? Longevity, I mean long life. You're all balled up in a knot and it produces stress and trauma and it causes the body to malfunction and ultimately will shorten your life. I told you last night that I was a substitute teacher last year and I tell you, I have never seen so many angry kids as I saw in those schools. Let me tell you. I came across a rather interesting um, report done by MTV. MTV recognized that teenagers are the hottest consumer demographic in America. There are 33 million teenagers in this world, in America. They comprise the largest generation of teens America has ever seen, larger even than a much bellyhooed baby boomer generation. Last year, teenagers in America spent $138 billion. They further influenced their parents in the spending of another $150 billion. That's $300 billion coming from children under the age of 18. But marketing to teens isn't as easy as it sounds. And so the marketeers have found a way uh, to seem to figure out how to get your kids to buy their stuff. MTV, long considered to be the arbiter of teen cool, in the late 1990s saw that MTV's ratings were going into the doghouse. In order to counter their loss, they embarked upon a major teen research project, the hallmark of which was its ethnographic study. They went to the homes of teens, they followed their interests, and they asked them as personal, as personal questions as they could. Now, what lesson did MTV learn? Now, listen. They figured out what the merchants of cool needed to do. Frontline introduced viewers to the, the MOOC and the midriff, who became stock characters that MTV and others have resorted to in order to hook your children. The midriff, the character pitched as teenage girls, is the highly sexualized, world-weary, sophisticated, sophisticate that is increasingly populates television shows like once Dawson Creek, films such as Cruel Intentions. Even more appealing to these marketeers was, uh, were the midriffs, 
their male counterpart, the MOOC, characterized mainly by his infantile, boorish behavior. The MOOC is a perpetual adolescent, cruel misogynist, means he hates women, and very, very angry. But in this, they found their avenue to a lucrative generation. To appeal to the MOOC, MTV has created programs as Spring Break, a, television vi a televised vision of teen beach debauchery, as well as a weekly program that capitalizes on the current wrestling crave. These kids love wrestling, man. What this system does is it closely studies the young, keeps them under the constant surveillance to figure out what will push their buttons. And whatever pushes your kid's button is what you're going to see on television. They figured out that kids like rage rock. When asked to describe what appeals to them about such music, the teens invariably responded that it belongs to them. It hasn't yet been taken and sold back to them at the mall. Full of profanity, violence, and misogyny, rage rock is literally a challenge thrown up to marketers. Just try to market this to us, and that's exactly what they did. There are people out there, you don't even know who they are. A guy named Eminem. Most of you didn't think that's a piece of candy. <laughs> old men, you say you still think that. Sound like an Eminem to me. It's a fellow who appeals to these young rage rockers, or limp biscuits, or breaking sales records in their ability to help your children get mad, to be angry, and to explode their rage. In today's media-saturated environment, such questions, it seems, are becoming increasingly difficult to answer. The one thing they want to know is, how do we keep them buying? And they figured out that the way to do it is to cap on the anger of the children of this generation. They are capping your children's anger. Matter of fact, I found a, an article written by a Walter Bonimi entitled Anger as a Basis for Sense of Self. <laughs> he says, ours is an angry culture. This has a direct effect on the development of personality. Many who come into our counseling offices have been particularly warped. A patient of mine says, the only efficacy I feel, the only worth I feel is when I'm angry, and that's, when I, and, and that's why I'm angry all the time. Are you listening? It's saying, listen, the only time I feel like I'm important is when I'm angry. When I'm mad, that's your kid. There are many forces that work to account for this pathology, the daily difficulties of getting about, getting about, getting ahead, getting fed, getting enough time to rest or think, deprivation, material, emotional, frustrations of normal struggle for autonomy, and a consequent desperate struggle for the pseudo-safety of dominating. What we live in, and live with this pushy, angry culture at best, and at its worst, it is savage. Personalities evolving in such circumstances, shaped by them, show serious deprivation, distortion of self-worth. Bottom line, listen. The sense of self is a subjective experience, the feeling of one's own self-functioning, which is, I am mad. Let me ask you, Pops, 
How did we produce all these mad children? They're just angry. Angry about what? They don't know. Just mad. And the ultimate outcome of it is that they take their anger out on the old. Yeah, you know I feel sorry for some elderly people. Because you're growing old in a world that no longer cares for the elderly. We've long since abandoned the babies. And now we're working on abandoning, abandoning the elderly. You know what they're saying? Listen, too many old people, we've got to get rid of some of them. Not going to be any Social Security left for me if we keep letting these old people live longer. We need to eradicate the surplus population of the elderly. Now, I don't know about you, but if I'm old, I'd be worried. <laughs> I'd sleep with my lights on. I... <laughs> I think if you're going to counter a culture of anger, if you're going to be a, an educator who is spirit-led, there are three things I think you absolutely have got to teach your children. Even if they are old, I don't care if he's 30 years old, it's not too late to start working on the three. Young men, if you're seated here this morning and you listen to me and you're 14, 15, 16, 19, 20 years old, listen, I was 19. I know what it's like to be young with all that energy and with all that uh, huff and puff. I know what it's like to want to get out there and get some of that life and see what it's all about and be on your own and run your own business and be able to say when you want to get up and go to bed and what you want to do and don't want to do. I understand all that. Only thing I want to tell you is that once you get out there, you can't come back. As long as you can live on somebody else, go for it, buddy. <laughs> Let me tell you three things I want you to learn if you have not learned, and that's everybody in the room. I'm not, I'm not, now I'm not talking to dads and sons. I'm talking to just men, period. Number one, you need to learn how to say no to self. Let me tell you, if you haven't learned how to self-discipline, if you haven't learned how to say no to yourself, there are five things that I absolutely know is going to happen to you. Number one, you're going to be overweight. Now, I'm not messing with you. I'm not picking on nobody. I'm blind. I don't see nobody. Okay? I'm just telling you, if you haven't learned self-discipline, you're going to be overweight. Because obesity flows out of an inability to control your mouth. That is, to keep it closed. And obesity will rob you of years. God has said, listen, if you honor your mom and dad, I'll make it well with you and I'll give you a long life. Listen, you are destroying what God has promised to give you. And it's all because you don't have self-discipline. Number two, you're going to have bad health. Listen, young people, there's nothing in this world worse than being young with all that energy and laid up in a bed sick and cannot function. Some of that bad health, some of that bad health you can help if you would only exercise. 
You got to exercise. You're the guy standing up here looking like a rail. You know why? He runs 11 miles a day. That's why. Once you get a certain size, your knees hurt, your back hates, your hurt hurts, your feet hate, your ankle hurt, everything hurt. Why? It's carrying too much. If you don't learn to say no to self, you're going to be overweight, you're going to be, you have bad health. And number three, you're going to be into addictive behavior. Addictive behavior that will so control you that you won't have the freedom to do anything else. A recent survey says 70%, 70% of internet pornography is viewed by boys between the ages of 14 and 19. So how do they know? It's because they have a little thing on your computer that you don't even know about that when you check into these websites, they get your footprint and they check the footprints and they're seeing that the people that are logging in are boys between the age of 14 and 19, 70%. Addictive behavior, and that's just the beginning of the addictive control. You don't say no. Everything feels good the first time. It's not until you get hooked and you become an addict that you lose control and you can no longer say no. You don't have the power to tell yourself no. Even though you're going to hate yourself afterward, even though you're going to feel dirty and feel like you did something wrong and you're going to promise yourself that you'll never do it again, you are totally incapable of saying no because you've lost the ability of self-discipline and self-control. Yeah, friend, listen. I can chronicle a long list of addictive behavior that's destroying your life. Number four, I can guarantee you that you're going to be divorced. I guarantee you, every one of you young men in here, if you don't learn how to control yourself, you're going to get divorced. You know why? Because every time a skirt comes flying by, and if it flies up, guess what? You want it. And you're not going to learn how to say, you know what, I already got a wife. In fact, you know what's going to happen to you? You're going to have a beautiful wife laying in the bed naked, and you won't even go in there and get with her. You'll be, you'll be watching naked women on television, naked women on the Internet. You'll be watching naked people in your mind. You've got a naked woman in the bed. He's called your wife, and you don't even want her. You know why? That's because you've lost control. It'll happen to you. I promise you. Number one reason for divorce is selfishness. I want my way. I don't want to come home. I want to hang out with the boys. I don't want to say no to anything. Number five, I can guarantee you that if you don't learn to say no to yourself, you're going to be in debt. Because you're going to want everything right now. Hey, John's got a new car. I want a new car. He's got it. I want it. I want a new boat. I want a new boat. He has a new gun. I want a new gun. I want a computer. I want a new computer. Everything. And the guy's down there saying, come on, come on, come on, come on, come on, come on, come on. We got layaway. We got charge cards. We got credit. Next thing you know, you wake up one day and you're so in debt you can't even take a day off from work. You can't afford to take a day off from work because you can't afford to have a day docked on your pay because you got those bills, they got to be paid. And deferred gratification becomes something that they used to read about in storybooks. Listen, my friend, you got to learn to say no to self. I was walking down the street, I was the first time I'd been to Calcutta, India. First time. 
flew an airport, got a, this taxi. He took me to this hotel, and uh, I wanted to go see where Mother Teresa, uh, the big about Mother Teresa, and she had this thing, and I wanted to go see it. And uh, that's why I, I stopped in Calcutta. I was on my way to another city. And so um, I had to spend the night there. And so I'm walking down the street, minding my own business. I'm not, listen, I, I just got in town. I'm minding my own business. I haven't done anything. I didn't go looking for anything. I'm just walking down the street. Okay? Street packed with people. I mean, folk everywhere. Ooh. So I'm just walking down the street, and there are all these little shops and people. And all of a sudden, this man comes up beside me and says, howdy. Uh, okay. Um, howdy. And he's speaking perfect Indian English. Um, <laughs> what, what are you doing here? I, um, I am come to see Mother Teresa. Uh-huh. He says, um, you're staying in a hotel? I says, yes, I'm in a hotel. And he points down, and you're in that one? I said, yeah. And then he says, um, $50. Uh, he said, $50. Uh, no, no, he said, 14-year-old daughter, $50. And I, I wasn't getting it. Because I didn't, 50 down, 14 years, I didn't, I didn't hear really what he was, and so he, he slowed down. I have 14-year-old daughter for $50. And so, because I stopped, because I was trying to figure out, and then all of a sudden I got what he was saying. He was saying to me, listen, I have a 14-year-old daughter that I will bring to your hotel for $50. And naturally, you know, Mr. Naive, I'm thinking, this is Cameron Cameron, right? Um, guy must be undercover police or something trying to get me. What's it? I said, what? So then I just turned around and started walking as fast as I could back to my hotel. And he, you know, he's following me. He's walking right here, you know. Saying, now, wait a minute, buddy. Um, you, you don't seem to get it. Um, first of all, I'm a preacher from America, number one. Number two, I'm married. And number three, you got a 14-year-old daughter and you're trying to sell me your 14-year-old daughter as a prostitute for $50? Well, no way. Now, if you said $2,000, I thought she was a princess, but uh, $50, no, that's cheap. Uh-uh, don't do that. <laughs> Let me ask you a question. Now, what, what would you do? Well, you know, here I am, only black guy within 700 miles where I could see don't nobody, no one knows who I am because I'm totally there by myself. I got plenty of money because I'm traveling and $50? What's $50? Well, i tell you what it is. $50 is called no self-control. That's what it is. I checked into a hotel and... Um, I checked into a hotel and I came up to the desk and I said, Charles Cooper, I have a room reserved. And, and he said, oh, hello, Mr. Cooper, welcome to the hotel. We're glad to have you. And, and the guy was checking me in and then he said, uh, okay, Mr. Cooper, you in room 714, whatever he said. You, okay, Mr. Cooper, you in 714. And then he gave me the key. Now, you'll notice now if you go to a hotel and you go up to the front desk and you check in, they will not say your room number out loud. 
There's a reason for that. He said, okay, Mr. Cooper, here's your room, and you're in room 714. So I, take, I pick up my bags, I go to my room, and I go in my room, and I'm there, I'm laying there, and it's about 7 o'clock at night, and the phone rings. And no, no one knows who I'm, I'm here, and so the phone rings, and it says, hello, and it's a very nice voice. Hello? Hello? Um, she said, it's a lady. Um, are you alone? Yes. Um, and I'm thinking, it's housekeeping, they want to come in, turn the sheets back for you, leave you a little chocolate mint on the pillow, you know. It's a... <laughs> Hello, are you alone? Yes, I'm alone. Um, how would you like for me to come up there? And I'm thinking, they're going to come turn the covers down. But I said, no, well, no, I'm already in bed. She said, oh, wonderful. And then she asked me a question, which I'm not going to repeat because it's, it's vulgar, but she wanted to manipulate, well, anyway, um, she, she said, no, ma'am, I don't, I, no, no, no. Well, it scared me because, you know, most of the things like this, what I'm telling you, most of you, it only happened in the movies, but it happens in real life. I thought it was a joke. I thought I got so scared, my hands started shaking, I hung the phone up because I got nervous because I didn't know what to do. What I should have said was, sure, come on up. I met her at the door with a Gideon Bible and talked about Jesus. <laughs> Gentlemen, if you don't learn self-control, you're going to have opportunity. You see, opportunity will come looking for you. You won't have to go looking for it. It will find its way to you. Number one, you've got to say no to yourself. Number two, Young men, you need to learn how to say no to sex before marriage. Said, so listen, don't provoke your kids to anger because an angry kid will latch out and he'll learn not to be protective of others. You need to learn that sex before marriage will get you in trouble. It'll make three things out of you. You have sex before marriage, number one, it'll make you a liar. It'll make you a liar. Because you're going to start telling people you either have or you haven't. You have more than you haven't or you have less than you have. One way or the other, you're going to be a liar. Number two, it's going to give you low moral standards. Your morale will go down because you're willing to settle for anything. A cheap night out is all that you're after. And then number three, boys, I can guarantee you, if you start sleeping around before you get married, you are going to have a STD a sexually transmitted disease. Now listen to this. Ashley Compton, age 15, of Columbia, Missouri, has been sexually active for three years. And that's anything but unique. Because, now, anytime you hear a bunch of surveys about sex, you always take it with a grain of salt, because there's a whole lot of lying going on. Okay? But according to this survey, Half of American teenagers between the age of 15 and 18 are sexually active. Intercourse is, isn't the only kind of sex kids are having. By the age of 18, 80% of males and 59% of females are masturbating or engaging in heavy petting, and 55% are having oral sex, and by the age of 19, 11% are having sex uh, which is really not sex, it's the ungodly stuff. 
that I won't mention. So this lady did a survey. She wanted to find out whether this abstinence-only stuff works. Guess what? She found out it does. And she goes to a great length to try to show you why it's not good, but she couldn't, she couldn't fight the facts. So listen, this is what she concludes. Because she doesn't like uh, this. She says, the Netherlands, that land of great virtue, the Netherlands has long had a comprehensive sex education curricula, that is, uh, safe sex and all that other stuff, and has one of the lowest teen pregnancy rates in the world, just 8.1 per thousand for girls aged 15 to 19. What they don't tell you is the abortion rate. Meanwhile, the United States has the highest rate of teen pregnancy in the developed world. 93 out of every 1,000 girls are pregnant in America. Ten times that of the Netherlands, supposedly. As a direct result, abortion rates are twice or three times as high as Europe here in America. And, now get this, 90% of parents in America want their children to be taught Sex education in school, 90%. Now, that's why I say you got to watch lies, because there's no way in this world I believe 90% of parents in America want their kids to talk sex education in school. I don't believe that. I just don't. I think it's a lie. It's propaganda from a darkness that is not real. you got to learn to say no to sex. Sex is one of the strongest urges your body will ever have, and if you don't learn to say no to it, it'll get you in trouble. It'll even kill you. Number three, you got to say I want you to learn to say yes to Jesus Christ. You've got to say no to self and no to sex before marriage. And then number three, gentlemen, you need to learn to say yes to Jesus Christ. Did you know, did you know that 79% of all people who come become Christians do so before the age of 40? Did you hear me? According to the, a survey, 79% of the people surveyed became Christians before the age of 40. To teach your kids to love Christ above all else, to teach them to listen to the word of God so that their days may be long on this earth. Dad, you've got to be a spirit-educating father to instill those kind of values in your sons. Let's pray. Father, we are living and seeing the fruit of our foolishness. In the 1960s, our generation turned loose of moral righteousness and embarked upon a journey of degradation and sin. The results of that lifestyle are now coming home to roost. Father, we live in a culture that constantly tells us that we cannot control ourselves. In fact, there are people, Father, telling us that it's not even good to do so. The result is a generation of angry kids 
who simply just do not understand the value of living a quiet life. Father, I want to pray for every grandfather in here that you will give him a platform to speak out of his experience. For he has seen the world's transformation and is best qualified to speak on its change. I want to pray for every father, many of whom lived foolishly, who spent many years chasing the flesh only to wake up one day and realize the devastation in their own lives and in the lives of their children and their wives. Many of whom are embarrassed or feel extremely guilty because of the savagery with which they live their lives as young men. And then, Father, there are the young men in this place, the young boys, trying to figure out how to be a man. In a world that doesn't make much sense, I pray for them. And, Father, I pray for the men roundup. I pray, Father, that it will be yet as long in the future as it has been in the past. That this place will continue to be a place where young men will learn how to live for Jesus Christ. May the next 10 or 15 years, as the older men leave us and the younger men take the responsibility to lead, May the tradition of the fathers be carried on. Thank you for every soul of every man in this place. In Jesus' name.